Good morning. Happy Advent to you. Would you turn your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 1? It's good to see all of you. Welcome. If you're here for the first time, so glad you're here. If you haven't been here in a while, welcome. Glad to see you. Thankful we can open our Bibles together today and begin a series on the humanity of Christ. And uh, it's my joy to be able to share some of these thoughts that I've been studying over the last several weeks with you. And I hope that it will be a great joy and blessing to you as well as it has been to me. Would you stand with me this morning? And I'd like for us to read, this will just be one of the texts we're looking at. I'd like us to read together Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25 as our scripture reading in unison together. Let's, as we usually do, stand and read the Word of God together before we begin our study. Matthew chapter 1, 18, 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus." for He will save His people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And He called His name Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank You for allowing Your Spirit to inspire the apostles, this Word through them, that You breathed Your Word into them and through their pen, Your Word was written down so that we could see and understand how You caused Your Son to become man and be a Savior to us. Father, help us to see clearer, clearer, more clearly than we've ever seen before the glory of the God-man and how You have provided for us a perfect Savior. We pray that You would fill our hearts with understanding and worship, that You would be glorified. We pray in the name of Jesus our Savior, our Mediator. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The humanity of Jesus. We celebrate this, whether we realize it or not, in a sense, on this Advent season, Christmas, the time when we understand that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth. And there's two main reasons that I have for wanting to study the Advent uh, theme of the humanity of Jesus. The first reason is because often 
when we study the Scriptures and we think about the person of Jesus Christ, we're often consumed with defending and explaining His deity. And, and rightly so. Right? Many false doctrines have risen up over the years that have attacked the deity of Christ. And we, we are told that Christ, the Son of God, is something less than God Himself. And so we don't give as much emphasis to His humanity. But so it is important also to speak of Christ's humanity. So let's talk about the humanity of Christ this Advent season. But also, as we study the humanity of Christ, my second reason for wanting to to focus on this this morning and the weeks ahead, I believe that the scriptural truths of the humanity of Christ will unveil for us more of the glory of Christ as our Savior. More of the power of the Gospel to save. And I think it will provide for us powerful and precious reasons to worship Christ by our trust, by our love for Him, by our obedience to Him, and certainly our praise of Him. And so, I think and I hope that these truths as we discuss the humanity of Christ will give us greater cause to glorify God together this Advent season. I hope that it will do that for all of us. And so if I could put the main idea in just a sentence, and you can see that at the top of your notes there that I provided for you in your bulletin, let your understanding of Christ's humanity lead you to worship Him by your trust, your love, your obedience, your praise. Now, like I said, this morning we're going to look at the beginning of Christ's humanity. I've sort of divided the concept of Christ's humanity into some pieces because otherwise, if we tried to tackle it all now, we would be here for a few days. And you want to probably take this into sections that you can work through and we can all work through together. So we're going to just talk about the beginning of Christ's humanity this morning, and we call that what? The virgin birth. That's the beginning of Christ's humanity. We also call it the incarnation, becoming into flesh. All right? But as we look at the virgin birth, I think it's appropriate and very important that first we set the humanity of Christ into its context. What would be the context of the humanity of Christ? Well, His eternal deity. Let me just make a reference to this a little bit here in our introduction to this, this series about the beginning of Christ's humanity, or this sermon about this, and look at His eternal deity for just a few moments. As we're introduced to the Scripture's witness to the virgin birth, we must recognize, we must have in our minds that Christ, though He became man, though He was born into the world, did not begin to exist at His human birth. We have to see that clearly in our minds. As we are introduced to the Scripture's witness to the virgin birth, we must recognize that Jesus Christ is also the eternal Son. The second person of the eternal Trinity. Truly God. Eternal God. And of course, we've begun to sing about that already. You can quiz your children about this later on this week. See if they were paying attention this morning. You can ask them, When did our Savior, the Christ, begin to exist? When did our Savior, the Christ, 
begin to exist? That's kind of a two-answered question. The answer would be Christ as God has always been and always will be. He is eternal and infinite. The Son of God, the second person of the eternal Trinity. But we also have to say that Christ as man began at His virgin birth. The Son of Man. The person of Christ is eternal, but His humanity began at the virgin birth. We could say it this way, the Son of God did not always have a human nature. But He has always been eternal God. Though the virgin birth, through the virgin birth, the eternal Son added human nature to His divine nature. So the Scripture reveals to us that the Son of God is one person, the person of Christ, but with two natures. A true and full divine nature and a true and full human nature. These are the mysteries but the foundations of Christianity. We are the only faith in the world that worships a God that is a trinity. One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But our Savior, the Son, one person, but two natures. A divine nature and a human nature. That's our Savior. And that God-man, that's why we call Him a God-man, because He had a divine nature and a human nature. That God-man is explained to us as clearly as can be and precisely in the prologue of the Gospel of John. Would you turn there with me for just a few moments? This is still a bit of our introduction. I want to make sure that we understand something of the context of Christ's humanity. And it will give us greater cause to glorify God this Advent season to see that God, eternal God, became man for our salvation, for the glory of God. John 1, 1-18. Let me just read it straight through. And then I'll make some comments. You can follow along or you can look up here on the screen as well. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believe in his name... He gave, right, he gave the right to become children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This was He of whom I said, He who ranks He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. I know these, many of these words are quite familiar to you, but don't let their familiar, familiarity rob you of their precious truths this morning as we consider the eternality of Christ for just a moment. As we look at this first verse, verse 1 is profoundly simple and yet wonderfully packed with the truths of the person of Christ. In the beginning was the Word. That is another name for Jesus. And remember, as you read this first prologue, keep the whole prologue together, verses 1-18, through 18, because verse 1 is kind of like a, a, a book holder on one end, and verse 18 is the other book holder on the other end. And you'll see how similar they are, and it'll introduce you to something more of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and you need to notice also that this Word was... It, I point out these little words, but they're, they're so important because that word was is different than a word that would be used for us like we became when we were born. It's a different word than what is used for in verse 14, the word became flesh, where the Son of God wasn't human before His incarnation. He became human. But when you look in verse 1, we see here that in the beginning was the word. He, he just was he, he continued to be. There is no beginning and no ending to the Word. He is in a form of existence that is eternal. That's what is implied by this Word and this Word and this Word and this Word. That there is this eternal existence with no beginning and no ending. In the beginning was the Word. That is the Son of God. The Word is another name for the Son. And you also see, so there you see His pre-existence that He eternally was. But then the second phrase, and the Word was what? With God. So then you begin to see a, a little bit of the Trinity. That there's a Father and a Son. Not only is there the Son, yes, who is eternal, but also the Trinity in its intimate relationship. The Word was with God. You see there the intimate relationship of the Trinity. Relationship between the Father and the Son eternally existing, and that also the Word was God. There you have clearly stated that Jesus, the Son, the Word, is God, was, always has been God. And verse 2 is a summary. He was in the beginning with God. Something else in verse 3 you begin to see about the Word, or the Son of God, the second person, the Trinity. All things were made through Him. He is what? Creator. All things were made through Him. In fact, you have to be careful with verse 3 not to overlook something very important that John is stating. That Jesus, the Son, the Word, is the uncreated Creator. He goes to great extent to be clear. He says there, and without Him was not anything made that was made. What is John doing? He's saying clearly that Jesus is the Creator and He created all things that are created. That leaves Him out of what category? Created. He is the uncreated Creator. He isn't the first creation of God the Father. No, He is the Son who is eternally existent. Eternally existent in intimate fellowship with the Father as a member of the Trinity and certainly fully God. And He is Creator. And the text goes on, In Him was life. The life was the light of men. What does that tell you about Jesus? The Word. That He is Sustainer. He has life in Himself. He is sustainer of all other life. 
the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. I want to skip through some of these verses and just pick up at the very last section here. This eternal Son, the Word. Then what happened in verse 14? And this, this just should humble us and amaze us because this eternal Son became flesh. Now is the first time that we see became referring to a person of the Trinity. He then, for the first time, became man, took on human nature, added a human nature to his divine nature. And why did he do that? To dwell among us, to live with us, to be our Savior, to show us his glory. Glory is of the only Son, the unique one, the unique Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And how, can we, how could we otherwise look upon God, right? How could we otherwise learn of who He is and worship Him rightly? How could we ever be reconciled to God for our sin would keep us separate from Him and an object of His eternal wrath? But then you see at the very end, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, right? Right. The Father has never been seen. He's a Spirit. The Spirit has never been seen. But this same, the only God, the same, this unique One, the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, who is at the Father's side, again, speaking of His eternal intimacy with the Father, what is He doing? What has He done by becoming flesh? He has made Him known. He has has exegeted the Father to us. He has explained, revealed, unfolded God to us. There's no other way to know God other than through His revelation and the most powerful and precious form of revelation of God, of Himself to us, is that the eternal Son took on human nature, lived with us, and revealed His glory. This is the the glory of the incarnation. The person of Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus. Now you know why He's called the Word. Does it make sense? Why is He called the Word? What do words do? They communicate things. And what does the Son do for us? He communicates to us the glory of God the grace and the truth of God through taking on human nature and living with us. That's why He's called the Word. He's the Word. Now, here's the question. This eternal, glorious Word, the Son, how did He then become man? What happened? How did God bring that about? How did God, how did the eternal Son, the Word, become flesh? How did He come to dwell among us? And the answer to that is the virgin birth. This is how Christ became human. The beginning of His humanity. So number one in your outline, I'd like to to look back here at Matthew. Chapter 1, 18-25. And we'll point out some things as we go here. Matthew gives a declaration and the proof of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ from the perspective of Joseph. Number one, Matthew's account of the virgin birth. Here's how the eternal Son took on human nature. Do you believe in the virgin birth? That is essential to being a Christian. If you deny the virgin birth, you're not a Christian. And you need still to be saved. Now, you may not understand the virgin birth in its entirety, but to reject it, 
is to reject the very truth that saves the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you who affirm, yes, I believe in the virgin birth. If someone came to you and said, I'm not sure I believe in the virgin birth. Can you prove it to me? Would you? Can you defend this foundational truth upon which your salvation rests? Well, maybe these texts will help us to be able to do that. The virgin birth account in Matthew chapter 1, letter A, God's child. I want to focus on God throughout this, these readings that we'll do together this morning. Matthew 1.18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. What are the next four words? From the Holy Spirit. I'm not going to get into all the details of these. We don't have time to do that this morning. I just want to point out to you these unmistakable, clear proofs of the virgin birth from the Holy Spirit. This pregnancy of Mary, who was legally bound and betrothed to Joseph, came about because of the Holy Spirit put this child, God's child, into the womb of Mary. It says it right there. From the Holy Spirit. This is how the birth of Jesus took place. God's child. And of course, Joseph's response to God's child, not yet knowing that it was God's child, is is quite expected. What does he say in verse 19? Or what does he do? Her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce, divorce her quietly. That was the legal way of dissolving a betrothal in the Jewish community. And of course, Joseph knew the law. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 23 and 23-37 describes what is the community response, God's commanded response to a betrothed couple when the wife is found pregnant by someone else, by another man. And it's very serious, even including, if the woman was willing, death. So Joseph knows the law, and he's very, very uh, aware of it. In fact, it says he's a just man. But he knew he couldn't ignore this situation, so he moved to do what is gracious and compassionate with Mary and simply dissolve the legal union quietly. But then... You see God's child here from the Holy Spirit, but then God sends to Joseph here an explanation. Let her be God's explanation. God steps into the picture, and an angel of the Lord comes to Joseph in a dream. And he says, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is what? Next four words. From the Holy Spirit. These are the proofs of the virgin birth. So glorious to see how God unfolds this for Joseph. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to keep the betrothal and to take her to be your wife. She hasn't been unfaithful to you, Joseph. The baby in her is from the Holy Spirit. Notice also that 
Matthew records here the angel's words, Joseph, what? Son of David. That's a very important name for Joseph because Jesus was born into the legal lineage of David. Joseph wasn't his biological father. Therefore, Jesus didn't have passed to him the, the sin nature, right? He didn't inherit guilt through Adam and through Joseph. This is the way God decided to do this. God ordained to do this. God might have been able to do it certainly a different way if He had chosen to. But He chose to, to bring about a child in the womb of Mary that was free of inherited guilt. But still, Joseph being His legal father brought Jesus into the legal lineage of David which made Him the heir of David's throne which fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah throughout the Old Testament. So the angel begins to explain from God, this is a child from the Holy Spirit. And he continues in verse 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Who can save people from their sins but God? Right? That, that is another proof of the virgin birth because you do not have just the mere man in the womb of Mary. You have the God-man whom alone can forgive sins. And what a fitting name. What does the name Jesus mean? Yahweh saves. A perfect name for the God-man. And all this took place. Now you have... Now you have God's Word on it. So you have God's child in this text. Two times you see the child is from the Holy Spirit. You have God's explanation to Joseph. Don't be afraid, Joseph. This is God's doing. That which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And then you have God's Word fulfilled. God's Word. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin. There you have it again. The virgin shall conceive. That's a paradox, right? How can a virgin conceive? Because the child is from the Holy Spirit. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And what, are they, what, what shall the name be called? Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. The God-man. God in human flesh. And so when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not. Again, another, another safeguard to protect the doctrine of the virgin birth. He, did, he was not intimate with her until after Jesus was born. And they called His name Jesus. Now, what text of Scripture is this taken from? What's the prophecy being fulfilled? Isaiah 7.14, right? 600 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah prophesied these things and the Spirit of God brought them about. The Spirit of God who moved in Isaiah to write the prophecy down then fulfilled this prophecy through the womb of Mary. Now, Matthew's not the only gospel to, account, uh, to, to, to give account of the virgin birth and to prove its reality. Luke also declares and proves the virgin birth of Jesus. But Luke writes it from Mary's perspective. So we have, number one, Matthew's account of the virgin birth. Number two, we have Luke's account of the virgin birth. 
And this is Luke 1, 26-45. Again, you can turn there in your Bibles, please. Or also, you can follow along on the screen. Number two, Luke's account of the virgin birth. Let me just walk through these verses with us again. Letter A, God's messenger. I want you to notice in the virgin birth, this was not some sort of mythical concoction by the disciples of Jesus. It is God who initiates this. In the sixth month, an angel, Gabriel, was what? Sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. This is God's doing. He sent the angel, told Mary, here's what's going to happen. Now, I want you to notice also, God sends His messenger to the right city, Nazareth. That even has prophetic fulfillment. Nazareth is is the ghetto of Israel. And you see that as a fulfillment of even a text like Isaiah 53, 1-3, that Jesus would grow up before God like a tender branch, a root out of dry ground, no form or comeliness. He comes out of nowhere, and you wouldn't recognize Him to be who He was. John 1 45 to 46, the Gospel of John chapter 1, 45 to 46, even has one of the early disciples before they became a disciple asking, Can anything good come from Nazareth? That's what they thought. Like, this is ridiculous. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. But God knew what he was doing, God was fulfilling his own word. And so he sends a messenger. You have God's messenger sent into this village to a what? virgin. These texts are filled with that word. It's proof of what God was doing. And this virgin, as we know, is betrothed, legally engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. Again, you have this prophetic word being fulfilled through the legal lineage of David. He's in the right house, to the right woman, in the right city. Prophetic fulfillment. Perfect. And complete. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. So I want you to look not only at God's messenger, but secondly, God's favor. This section underscores God's favor upon Mary and through the work that he would do with her, the world. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O Favored one, the Lord is with you. Do you know what that means, favored one? It means that God is pursuing her with grace. That God is pursuing His people with grace. You are favored. You are being pursued by God in grace. God is going to use Mary in His redemptive work of grace. And of course, Mary's response is what we would expect. She was what? Greatly troubled at the saying. And she trying to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And as angels would often say to the people of God, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. God's grace is pursuing you. It's at work in your life. And through you, God is going to do a great work in the lives of His people. And look what he continues to say. God's favor is being then explained here. 
verse 31, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. Could you imagine Mary's hearing of this? Just slow down and think about it. It's a young girl. And an angel comes to her and says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be what? The Son of the Most High. Did I hear you right? God is going to put His Son in me? And He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom, there will be no end. This is the grace of God at work through the virgin birth. Now there's so many prophecies fulfilled here. Let me just give you a few to think on Second Chronicles chapter 7, verses 8 through 16, spells out for us the Davidic covenant. God came to David, the king of Israel, and said, I'm going to give you a son who will reign forever. Fulfilled. That's what, that's what the angel is telling Mary. This, this son of the Most High will be given the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Fulfilled. 2 Chronicles 7, 8-16. through Psalm 2. Other psalms as well, but Psalm 2 is a well-known psalm echoed in these words that God would say about His Son, I have put My King on the throne in Zion. Kiss the Son lest He be angry and you perish in the way. This is the one that Psalm 2 is talking about. Isaiah 9, 6-7. right? We will call Him Wonderful. Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That's echoed here. And of His dominion, there shall be what? No end. That's that's this one. Mary knew these words. And she's listening to this. And the Son of the Most High, the the heir to the throne of David is going to be placed in my womb. He He will reign over the house of Jacob forever of His kingdom. There will be no end. Unbelievable. And so she did struggle with this. Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a, there it is again, virgin. How can this be? How is this possible? I'm not married. I've never been with a man. How is it possible? So you see God's messenger, better be God's favor. And this text comes to a conclusion focusing on God's power to accomplish the very thing that Mary wonders about. What what does the messenger say? The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. That is the closest that we get to reading about how the virgin birth happened. But that's as far as we go. It's a a thing uh, of God's amazing grace and power. Those words, uh, the Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Those words are, are really referring to texts in the Old Testament. Isaiah 32, 14 and 15 talks about the Spirit being poured out from on high. That word overshadow is a word that's used in the Old Testament for the special presence of God. For example, Exodus chapter 40 
verses 35, verse 35. Mary's listening to this and, he's, and, and she's taking in the words of the messenger. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. That's how this will be. That's how this virgin conception will be. The, the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, because of that, the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. It's amazing. The Son of God, born, conceived in the womb of Mary, because the power of the Most High God overshadowed her and brought this about. There's no way to physically explain the virgin birth. You have to use these words. Try to explain the Trinity. Try to explain the hypostatic union, right? That Christ, the one person, has two natures. Try to explain in human terms the virgin birth. You can't. It's far greater than we can explain, but we can use these words. This is how the virgin birth came to be. And I love how the angel goes on because God knew that Mary would need something more to help her to understand what was going on. Because then in verse 36, the angel says, Behold, your your relative Elizabeth, remember her? Yeah, the one who was too old to have a baby? In her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. The, the, The barren, elderly woman who in all human senses could not conceive. Yep, she's six months pregnant. Mary, God's power can bring this about. The Holy Spirit can bring about a child who is called Holy, the Son of God, the God-man. In verse 37, how can this be? How can this be? (laughs) Because nothing will be impossible with God. That's the proof of the virgin birth. Nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary was convinced. Mary was convinced. She said, I am the Lord's servant. Could you imagine just the sense of... Getting those words out. God is going to do what is good and right anyway, but for her to say, let it be. Let it be as you have said. Put this Son of the Most High in me. Let it be according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And I love how it continues because what does Mary do? It's the first thing you would expect she would do. Let me go see Elizabeth. I've got to go and and put my hands on Elizabeth. I've got to see this. In those days, Mary rose and went with haste to the hill country, a town in Judea, or in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, John the Baptist, right? Filled with the Holy Spirit from his birth. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women. Blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Who is in Mary's womb? The Lord. That's the virgin birth. That's the virgin conception. That 
That is proof there. That, that's echo of, of Psalm 110 verse 1. My Lord. Speaking of the Messiah. Behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And then, of course, you have the Magnificat, right? Mary magnifying the Lord for what He had done in her life. So we have Matthew's account of the virgin birth. This is, this is how you prove it to someone. You walk through and show them this is the foundation of your faith. You know, we hurry through these texts too much, don't we? You just slow down and look at the words and you'll see the proof is there plainly on the page. Secondly, we see the Luke's account of the virgin birth. Now, number three, finally this morning, let's talk for a few moments. And really, this is introductory to the, the messages that we're going to have later on this month. The purpose of the virgin birth. The purpose of the virgin birth. Letter A under your number three in your notes. The virgin birth is God's chosen way to give us a perfect, fitting Savior, the God-man. Again, you kind of think of the question, could God have done it another way? He didn't. This is the way He chose to do what He was going to do. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. We need to understand, beloved, as a body, the truth, the importance, and the impact of our Savior being God-made man. God-man. Jesus Christ is truly human. He's male. He's man. Human in the full sense of what it means to be human, except for sin. And the humanity of Jesus Christ is absolutely essential for our salvation. Do you realize that? It is essential that our Savior be God and man. Without a human Savior, we human beings would not be saved. The virgin birth is God's chosen means of bringing into the world the serpent-crushing, sinless seed of the woman. Remember Genesis 3.15? I'll put enmity between you and the woman, God said to Satan, between her seed and your seed. You will crush the seed. Her seed would crush the serpent's head and the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. Right? That's speaking of Jesus. The God-man. Galatians 4, 4-7 through explains more fully that fulfillment. Listen, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of what? Woman. Why? Virgin birth. Sinless God-man. Not having inherited from His Father the guilt of humanity. Born of a woman. Born under the law to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. There's so much. You see, because of the humanity of Christ, listen, let me just introduce these thoughts to you and we'll work on them throughout the month. 
because of the humanity of Christ, we have a Savior who is who as man is perfectly righteous. That is incredibly important for us to have inherited righteousness to stand before God. Because of the humanity of Christ, we have a Savior who as man has received our guilt. A man must receive the guilt of man. A man must give the righteousness of man to other sinners in order to stand before God perfectly. Because of the humanity of Christ, we have a Savior who as a man has paid our debt. What's our debt? The eternal wrath of God fulfilled in a shorter time on the cross. A man must be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We need a man. We need a human Savior. A God-man. Because of the humanity of Christ, we have a Savior who as a man dealt with us in sympathy and power. Uh, We're going to talk about this. I hope it will be such a great blessing to you. Because... Because we have a human Savior, we have a Savior who as a man secured our resurrection. What kind of a body did Christ resurrect with? The body of a human. And He lives in human, as a, as a human even now. Because we have a, a human Savior, we have a Savior who as a man will return and lead us into our complete inheritance. You see, we need this Savior We need a Savior who is a true man. And so God chose to bring us this Savior through the virgin birth. You can see, you can begin to see the absolute necessity of the humanity of Christ and the virgin birth. Without it, we don't have salvation. You remove either of these truths about Christ and there's no salvation for us. But we have to come to know, but we have come to know and believe that that there is one God. Right And one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. Now, final point for this morning here. Letter B. The purpose of the virgin birth? The virgin birth is God's chosen way to demonstrate that salvation is entirely of God. This is, this is glorious and wonderful and very important for us to know. There are two times... In the Gospel of Luke, where the word impossible appears. Luke one thirty seven. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now, you know what that's referring to, right? The incarnation. I mean, the, the virgin birth of the God-man. The, the conception of the God-man in the womb of a virgin. Mary's like, how can this be? Answer, nothing will be impossible with God. The other time it appears in the Gospel of Luke is in Luke 18.27. And that's in the story of the rich young ruler. Where Jesus was really telling the Gospel to the rich young ruler and he refused to follow Christ as Savior and would rather hold on to his riches. And so Jesus says to his disciples, it's easier for a rich man, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Wow. Right? It's literal there. It's easier for, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples then say, who then can be saved? And Jesus answered, but He said, what is impossible with man 
is possible with God. And you know what? This this doing of God through the womb of a virgin or a barren woman is, is not new with Mary, right? It happened through Elizabeth. But where else in the Old Testament do you see this kind of language? Genesis 18.14, when Sarah laughed because God was going to bring Isaac into the world through her and through Isaac fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham to bless the whole world with salvation and blessing. God loves to do this kind of thing. He loves to bring forth His redemptive plan through women who can't have children. And not only Sarah, this impossible pregnancy with Sarah, but also Rachel, right, is in that same line. And who else? Hannah? What's the point? Why all of this impossibility? You see, from the entrance of the God-man, our Savior, into the world through the womb of a virgin to the entrance of a sinner into the kingdom of God, it is all impossible for you and me. We can't do any part of it. If God's work of redemption and salvation is impossible for us to do. It's impossible for us to move along. It is holy and completely an act of the power of God's grace. And that does two things. For those who would hold on to their self-righteousness, it says, well, forget it then. If I, don't, if I can't do this and exalt myself in salvation, I don't want any part of it. Well, it scandalizes you then, doesn't it? Because God will not receive a salvation except for what He does in His power. But then for you who would trust totally upon the grace of God, it makes you rejoice because then you know that your salvation can be accomplished from beginning to end. Because you look at your own salvation, your own progress of sanctification, like, this is impossible! I'm too weak. I'm too sinful. I'm too depraved. I don't know enough. I can't do this. But what's the answer? What is impossible with man is possible with God. That's the point of the virgin birth. That's the point of how God works salvation. Think about it though. Think about it in real terms. How would we ever begin to think that we can begin to bring anything of ourselves into the work of salvation. Think about it. Can you provide for yourself a fitting Savior to stand before the Holy God in your place? Can you do that? Not a chance. Can you provide for yourself a righteousness, a holiness, an obedience that the Holy God can look upon and think, that's good. I will welcome you. Not a chance. Our best efforts are putrefying to God. Can you provide for yourself a regeneration? Or or can you provide for yourself a representative onto whom you can pass your guilt before a holy God? Can you give your guilt to somebody? No. No, you can't do any of these things. Can you provide for yourself a substitute who can pay in full the, the debt 
of eternal wrath that you and I owe for your sin against our holy God? Can you do that? No, you can't do that for yourself either. Can you provide for yourself a mediator, an intercessor, who will stand in the presence of our holy God ceaselessly to advocate for you in sympathy and power? No. Can you secure yourself a resurrection from your grave? Think about the futility of these things. We can't accomplish any of them. Can you secure for yourself an eternal inheritance in the new heaven and the new earth? This is salvation. And yet, what is impossible with us is possible with God. Through the God-man, the virgin birth, the humanity of Christ, God accomplishes all those things for the one who trusts in Christ. It's done. Which one of these acts can you do for yourself? No, none of them. So trust in Christ. If you're trusting in anything other than Christ this morning for your forgiveness with God, for your standing eternal in eternal life with God, trust in Christ alone. You need all of those things I just mentioned to be with God forever, and only Christ can give them to you. Turn from sin. It's not worth it. Turn from self-righteousness and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And you will experience the impossible salvation because it's possible with God. And your joy will overflow. To you who are already believing, let me close with this. Do not relent on the glorious doctrines of the virgin birth and the real humanity of Christ. They are saving life to us. Rejoice in these truths and trust in the power of God to save from the very moment you begin to breathe as a child of God to the moment you breathe the air of heaven. Trust in the power of God to save. Let your understanding of Christ's humanity lead you to worship Him by your trust, your love, your obedience, and your praise. But we'll talk more about the humanity of Christ in the weeks ahead. Would you stand with me? Let's pray together. And then we'll sing. Our Heavenly Father, these things are so wonderful to consider. Far more than we could ever invent or any human could invent. And they are glorious truths because they show you to be a glorious God. Powerful God. Almighty, merciful and compassionate and gracious God. Thank you that all who come to you to trust in Christ and plead for your salvation will not be cast away. That's the promise of the Son. All who come to me, I will in no wise cast out, but will raise them up on the last day. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for doing all the will of the Father for our salvation. And Father, as we rehearse and learn of these truths about the humanity of the Son, May our faith grow. May our love grow. May our understanding grow. Our obedience and our praise for you. Father, may it be for your glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.